Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. As we record this podcast, it is just over 24 hours since the passing of the NBA trade deadline, and we are here to break down all of the moves. So I'm here today with Tyler Metcalf and Jeremy Stevens. And Tyler, how are you doing? Phenomenal, Nick. Good to be back. And Jeremy, how about you? I survived. (laughs) Just for reference, this podcast is being recorded not long enough, I think, after the Rajan Rondo buzzer beater against the Boston Celtics. I would have loved for both teams to lose, but unfortunately that can't happen in the NBA. So, you know, I got to take what I can get on that front. Yeah, I uh, just got out of the intensive care unit after almost dying watching the shot, but you know. Well, let's revive you by talking about a trade made by one of the Boston Celtics' biggest rivals, Purely in terms of geographical location, not in terms of actual quality of the basketball team, the New York Knicks, about a week before the trade deadline, which I think is an important part of this, that they had quite a bit of time to go before the actual trade deadline itself, traded Kristaps Porzingis, the best player that the team has had in maybe a decade, depends on how you feel about Carmelo Anthony's years in New York, certainly the best young player that they've had in many, many years. The Knicks traded him for cap space. They sent Kristaps Porzingis, Courtney Lee, Tim Hardaway Jr. to the Dallas Mavericks in return for Wesley Matthews, Dennis Smith Jr., DeAndre Jordan, and the Knicks also received Dallas's 2021 first-round pick, which is unprotected, and Dallas's 2023 first-round pick, 1-10 to protected. And I wanted to start with the Knicks side of this deal. And I don't want to be too extreme on this front, but if the Knicks do not sign Kevin Durant on July 1st this coming summer, and if the Knicks have not aggressively tampered to the point where they are fully aware that Kevin Durant is signing there this summer, this is a completely and utterly indefensible trade in my mind. But Tyler, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so I feel like this is a trade that we really can't judge properly for another, you know, five, six months until free agency hits. If they end up being able to sign two legitimate, you know, max guys like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving this offseason, then I think it was a great trade. Um, They were able to move off of two really bad contracts in Courtney Lee and Tim Hardaway Jr., which were bad from the day they signed them. Team-wise, that is, not not player-wise, obviously. And Chris Stapps has had a lot of injury concerns, and I, I, I'm i I'm skeptical on how good he is when he's going to come back. I hope he comes back like we you know saw him, but he's had a lot of little stuff that's built up over you know his his early career. With that said, if those two max spots that they created end up being you know Tobias Harris and Boogie Cousins, then this trade was an absolute failure and just another example of the Knicks being the Knicks. Yeah, I mean, if we ignore like the the looming free agency thing, I can almost almost talk to myself, talk to myself, talk myself into thinking this is a decent trade for New York, but it's really hard to sell the idea of trading your cornerstone player as a salary dump, especially given that he's on like the rookie cost control contract and all that, but it is you know, it's still going to be one of those wait and see kind of trades because if Porzingis is never the same after the ACL, then obviously that matters. If Knicks go crazy in free agency and get whatever two guys they want, obviously that matters too. Uh, 
I don't think we should underrate too much getting off of bad contracts and getting draft picks back, but it's it's just so hard to um to use a cornerstone guy as a salary dump. I just feel like that's never happened. So maybe that's why they got grilled so badly as soon as the trade went through because people just had never seen anything like it, and that's that's kind of scary. So, uh, in it just in a vacuum, you know, minus all the free agency stuff though, it it mostly looks not great to be honest. But um, you know, we'll have to wait to see how it really shakes out. If this trade had been made by any of the other 29 teams in the league, with the possible exception of the Chicago Bulls and the other possible exception of the Washington Wizards, but if anyone else had made this trade, my assumption would be either the Knicks have his medicals or the hypothetical team that had Chris Porzingis on their roster had his medical records and they were pretty sure that he was never going to be the same player again. Either that or they had a previous commitment from a free agent and a lot of the reporting in the last week or so has made it pretty clear that Kevin Durant to the Knicks is basically all but a done deal. On the other hand, because it's the Knicks, I'm just not sure. I mean, this is the team that sold out their entire future to sign Amari Stoudemire and didn't get insurance on his contract. And within the first year of that deal, he hurt his knee again and was never the same player. So if it were anyone else in the league, I would be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. But this is the Knicks, and this is the team owned by Jim Dolan, and this is the team that, as the third line on the headline for the Kristaps Porzingis trade run on the Knicks-owned and operated Madison Square Garden network, the third line item listed was skipped his exit meeting after the 2016-17 season. And you just don't see that kind of garbage and pettiness with any other organization. So it's hard to be sure that anything is going to work out. I would like for it to work out just in the sense that I think basketball is more fun when games in Madison Square Garden aren't foregone conclusions, but it's just so hard to trust the Knicks, especially when James Dolan is at the head of the organization. But let's look at the other side of this deal, which is the Dallas side of this deal. And I'm not sure Courtney Lee is a terrible contract for them, or certainly not as terrible of a contract for them as he was for the Knicks. He can contribute on defense. He's a really solid three-point shooter. He doesn't take the ball out of your best player's hands at all. Tim Hardaway Jr., I'm not as sure of, but if they had to make that salary work and get Hardaway Jr. in the deal to make that happen, you know, sure, you got to do what you got to do. That 2021 first-round pick is going to be out of the lottery unless everything goes wrong in Dallas. But even if Porzingis literally never plays a game for them, I think by 2021, Luka's getting them into the playoffs pretty consistently. Same thing with that 2023 first-round pick. They'll still have Luka under team control at that point unless they trade him. I mean, Dallas really didn't give up all that much in terms of how it affects them. What they gave up doesn't really hurt them long-term. And in return for that, they made an upside play on what is already one of, if not the best, young 1-2 tandem in the league. Sure. So I, I'm I'm in the camp that thinks Hardaway Jr. is actually pretty underrated. Uh, the Knicks being the Knicks are on national TV a lot, even though they're absolutely horrendous. But Hardaway is a guy that's going to get points no matter what. And that's he, he was in one of those situations where you might look at it as like a people call it like empty calorie stats or whatever, because somebody has to score, which is true. No matter how bad a team is, somebody someone will be the 20 point scorer on that team. In Dallas, he can still get his shots off without having to run an offense because the keys to the car go to Doncic. So I, I like Hardaway there as more of a complimentary guy. 
I, I don't think he'll have any problem sacrificing his role because he'd rather probably do that than have to carry an awful team. I think he'll be glad to be out of New York. Uh, I'm a little biased about Courtney Lee because he played for the Celtics, and I think he was a great role player then, and I think he's a pretty good role player now. The money is what it is. I think the Mavericks are proven to be able to manage the books better than most teams, so I don't think they'll hurt too much from that. And, of course, if Porzingis becomes Porzingis again, then obviously they got an all-star level player. And if they don't, the deal could still work out pretty well because you're just surrounding Doncic with guys who can shoot, which is what they need. So I think generally it's going to work out just fine for them unless somehow those draft picks become super amazing picks. But, uh, oh, no, I'm just seeing now one of them's top 10 protected, so it probably won't be. But, um, yeah, I, I think they did pretty well on their side of it. For Dallas, I think it makes all the sense in the world to do this and it's a shot in the dark on Chris Stapps. They'd been shopping Dennis Smith for a while now after that fit with Luca clearly didn't work. And I've, I've always thought Hardaway's gotten a bad rap. Um, I think he's a pretty solid, you know, energy scorer. Um, his ball handling and playmaking ability isn't good enough to, you know, run the offense. So I think being paired with Luca and being that off ball scorer, I think will actually be a really nice role for him. And he's obviously not worth what his contract is, but the team offered it to him. So can't blame the guy for signing it. Um, I, I'm really excited for the Kristaps and, uh, and Luca pick and roll game. Um, just Kristaps versatility on offense and how he can score at uh, from any point on the floor, um, I think is really intriguing. And then just pair that with Luca's vision and playmaking ability. I think that they have a couple of really nice pieces going forward. And and Nick, like you said, even if Kristaps doesn't, you know, really pan out or play again, and they're going to be just fine with Luca. Let's move on to the Rodney Hood trade. The Cleveland Cavaliers shipped Rodney Hood to the Portland Trailblazers for Nick Stauskas, Wade Baldwin, and two future second round picks, one in 2021 and one in 2023. We will talk about Nick Stauskas and Wade Baldwin surprisingly frequently throughout the rest of this podcast. But in terms of the return for the Cavaliers, they gave up a guy who wasn't helping them tank all that well, which is really all they're concerned about at this point. And in return, they picked up a couple of future assets for pretty much nothing. So given that it seems pretty clear that there was no market to get a first round pick for Rodney Hood, I think this was about as good as the Cavaliers could have done in this deal. On the other side, the Blazers get to take a flyer on a young-ish wing player, and those second round picks aren't really that much skin off of their backs. Jeremy, what were your thoughts on the Rodney Hood trade? So I guess on the, the Rodney Hood side of things, he's one of those players that's like theoretically supposed to have been good for a long time. And I think that's just mostly based on his reputation as a sharpshooter at Duke. And then he had his moments now and again with Utah, where he started, and then Cleveland. But at, at some point, that window closes, and it probably closed a while ago. I don't know. It's never too late for like a renaissance, I guess. But um, what kind of stood out to me is I remember when this season started, there was like an oddly... Nick Stauskas was on fire for like 17 minutes. It was pretty incredible. And then I just haven't heard his name again since. So it's it's a oddly good move for Cleveland. It's not something you say very often, but if you can pick up assets for a guy that you don't want that, yeah, that's that's pretty good for them. So and then as far you know, as far as acquiring Rodney Hood, I don't expect anything, but you know, can always reform to to bounce back. 
I actually like this for for both teams. Um, Cleveland was able to get rid of a guy who clearly hated at being there every minute since he arrived, um, and is trying to play for another contract. And you know the the pit that is the Cleveland Cavaliers was not helping him get any money. So hopefully the change of scenery for him in Portland with a contending team will kind of reignite some of the flashes that we saw in Utah and Portland really needs another wing who can actually score the ball and alleviate some of the pressure from Lillard and McCollum. And then Cleveland is just stockpiling picks, um, just adding another two second rounders. You know, they, I get the second round picks rarely actually turn into quality players, but they're still assets that can be used in trades to either move up in the draft or get decent role players. Um, so ju- just continuing to build upon assets and draft capital for the Cavaliers, I think is a really smart move on their part. Moving on to the next deal, the Oklahoma City Thunder sold Timothy Luau Cabarro to the Bulls. Sold is really the wrong word. In truth, the Bulls, of course, being the Bulls, picked up more cash because it seems that all that the Bulls care about is trying to turn as many of their player assets as possible into money to fund Jerry Reinsdorf's Chicago White Sox, the team that he actually cares about. It always astounds me that the Oklahoma City Thunder are run the way the Chicago Bulls should be run in terms of spending, and the Chicago Bulls operate like a double-A baseball team in terms of the entirety of their organization. The Bulls are the worst. I mean, their management and ownership is so cheap, and that that Forbes valuation just came out recently, and they were a top-five valued team in the NBA with worth like 2.5 to three billion dollars and they just keep selling players and picks for cash i mean i they're just a joke right now to my knowledge the bulls have sold out like every home game forever which is pretty impressive to me given how badly they're run uh maybe with buying a player they're trying to reverse the karma of selling jordan bell to the warriors i you know i haven't i haven't seen a whole lot of cabaret on the court but just to jump in sure the bulls actually got money from the Thunder, not the other way around. Oh, really? The Bulls would never buy a player. They would never spend cash on anything. Oh, you're right. I did read it backwards. <laughs> oh, my God, Chicago. <laughs> oh, my God, man. Oh, forget everything I said, except for the fact that they somehow like are always selling out games. Oh, no, man. No, I don't know. I have nothing for this. This doesn't make any sense to me then. <laughs> if you ever forget how much ownership matters, just look at the fact that the Bulls and the Knicks have every possible opportunity to not be trash fire franchises, and they have repeatedly and willingly shot themselves in the face every single year. At least the difference with the Bulls is that I can understand what their strategy is, which is we are the cheapest people in the universe, and we do not care at all for this franchise that we own because we know that the value will continue to increase and increase purely because our franchise is based in the in the city of Chicago. Whereas with the Knicks, the organizational plan is basically hold my beer every single year. I'm going to top the ridiculously stupid thing I did last year with another ridiculously stupid thing this year. But let's move on to a trade that wasn't actually all that ridiculously stupid. The Los Angeles Lakers traded Svi Mikhailuk and a future second round pick 
in return for Reggie Bullock, which might be, in my mind, one of the most underrated moves of this trade deadline. The Lakers got an incredibly talented shooter who's been improving on defense every year of his career, and LeBron James is going to absolutely love playing with this guy. And in return, the Lakers gave up someone who was, I think, fifth or sixth on their depth chart of young assets that were desperately trying to trade for Anthony Davis and falling way short in doing so. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Um, I think you summed up who Bullock is pretty well. I actually just want to ask a question, which is why would Detroit sell low on this guy, but not like this is the kind of move where it's like, well, we're trading our, our guys anyway, so whatever, take this guy for a pick. But I, I just, yeah, why, why does Detroit do this? Absolute radio silence. <laughs> for people listening to this, this silence is a lot longer than what you're going to hear. So there's just no reason for them to do this? Is that the answer to it? I'm sensing a pattern here where a lot of these people have no idea what they're doing. I, I feel like Detroit's one of the, these franchises that's caught in the middle of what they want to do, that kind of ownership and management kind of want to tank and start getting picks. And they've been shopping Reggie Jackson heavily for two or three years now. And obviously no one else in the NBA wants him. Um, They're trying to kind of sit on the fence with what they want to do. They want to be good, but they want a good draft pick and build assets and be young, but not completely tank. So, and they're just kind of on that treadmill of mediocrity right now. Well, speaking of the treadmill of mediocrity, let's move on to a team that saw that they were pretty close to that treadmill of mediocrity and instead decided to opt for maybe the biggest deal of the trade deadline. Depends on your thoughts on the Chris Stapps Porzingis trade. But the Los Angeles Clippers in the eighth seed in the Western Conference at the time of the trade sent Tobias Harris, Boban Marjanovic, which thankfully they were traded together because Bobby and Toby should be together forever, Mike Scott. And in return, the Clippers got Landry Shamit, Wilson Chandler, Mike Muscala, who they shipped out within a day, a 2020 lottery-protected first-round pick, and Miami's 2021 unprotected first-round pick. They also got second-round picks from the Pistons in 2021 and 2023. Those picks were previously owned by the Philadelphia 76ers. I want to start with the Philly side of the trade, and the part that concerns me on the Philadelphia side is that, first of all, they gave up two future first-round picks for a guy who's about to be a free agent and an unrestricted free agent at that, but second of all, I'm really concerned that this is Elton Brand basically signaling not only do we not think we have a chance at re-signing Jimmy Butler this offseason, but we're not sure that we want to. Granted, all of the press talk has been, you know, this is our new big four, this is the future of this franchise, but the Butler fit hasn't looked great so far, and this kind of feels like a bailout move where, hey, at least we've got a good chance at re-signing Tobias instead. Tyler, your thoughts? So from a talent standpoint, I like it. I think it immediately gives them the best starting five in the East. I thought they way overpaid for a guy for four months, but I mean, he's like 25, 26 years old only. So if, you know, they, they kind of have the first shot at re-signing him. So I kind of guess that's where all the the assets and the value came in. Um, but I completely agree with you. And I think that this is kind of a safety net for when they offer Jimmy Butler a two-year deal and he turns it down and goes to Brooklyn or Orlando for a 
four or five year max. Um, so this way they're still able to keep a really, really good player in Tobias Harris um, and not just have given up Covington and Sarich and then Lewis Butler. I'm concerned about their depth. Um, I mean, Mike Scott and Boban are, are, are nice pieces, but Landry Sham, it was a really good player for them and provided a lot of shooting. And I think they lose a lot of that. It'll be interesting to see how, how much and how successfully they're able to kind of stagger minutes with these guys, because outside of, you know, the first and last five minutes of a game, I feel like these guys really shouldn't be playing together a whole lot. And just as long as you can have, you know, two to three of their starting five on the floor at all times, um, it, they, they could be a really, really dangerous team in the playoffs. So I've been going back and forth on this trade a lot. And I guess what stands out to me the most is that Philly gave up a lot to get Harris and whether or not anybody resigns, it's like when you, when you go for a home run trade, I think the question you inevitably have to answer is, do you beat the Warriors this year? And you ask that question every year until the Warriors aren't good anymore. And I'm not sure that answer is yes. So it kind of makes me question if it's worth giving up so much value. And the other thing is, let's just, how do I put it? Like if, Every team needs five guys that they can have on the floor at the same time. And the reason I say that is because it doesn't have to be your starting five. A lot of teams will start some guy, play him 10 minutes, and never play him again for the rest of the game. If you're Philadelphia right now, I think it absolutely, without question, has to be their starting five needs to be excellent, or this trade doesn't work, which is weird that I I guess they assume that it would be if they made the trade, but... Because if it doesn't work, they they really don't have depth anymore because they traded essentially four or five role players for two really good players. And I, I, I do think they have an excellent lineup. My best guess is they're going to win a lot of games in the regular season at the very least. But um, it, it's this just seems like super high risk for me. And the, the, the greatest potential reward, I don't know if is the one you would want for the amount of risk put into this. So generally, I just I, I have a hard time being sold on it, especially if. You know, you you sure they brought in a borderline all star, but that guy's like their fourth option, which means he's not going to be talent or no talent. He's not really going to be an all star for the rest of the season in that role. So, yeah, it's it's very it's very odd to me. I I don't think it's a good trade. On the flip side, of course, I think this is an absolutely brilliant move by the Los Angeles Clippers. Instead of basically being the playoff doormat slash eighth seed for the Los Angeles Lakers. They gave up a guy who, in all likelihood, was either going to be a max player that you're not entirely sure is worth the max, or someone that was going to walk in free agency. And in return, they got a ton of future assets. They cleared a lot of cap space to be able to at least put their foot in the door for a lot of the upcoming free agent talent in this coming class. And really... If you're talking about the three teams that are kind of in the race for the eighth seed right now in the West, namely the Clippers, the Sacramento Kings, of course, and the Los Angeles Lakers, the Clippers are and certainly should be the team among that group that is the least desperate to make the playoffs this year for very different reasons, let's just say. I think both the Kings and the Lakers really, really, really want to make the playoffs this year. The Lakers in particular, it's kind of a disaster for them if they don't. And the Clippers, who knows? I mean, their biggest asset this year has been their depth. So maybe they can still compete for a playoff slot, even without Tobias Harris on the roster. But uh, 
no matter what happens to the Clippers for the rest of this season, they picked up a ton of future assets for a guy who maybe was not going to be a positive asset for them much longer, just in terms of his contract. So I'm a huge fan of this deal for the Los Angeles Clippers. Now, let's move on to the next deal that we have in this rundown. The Milwaukee Bucks traded Thon McCurr to the Detroit Pistons in return for Stanley Johnson. This is kind of a flyer trade for both teams. Both of those guys didn't really work out at their first stop, but they had some fit issues. They had some issues getting playing time, getting on the floor. I think that ultimately either team could benefit from this trade, but really they weren't losing all that much by giving up the guys they gave up. And in return, who knows, maybe one or both of them has a much better career with their new team than their previous one. Jeremy, your thoughts? I only got one thing for this one, which is Thon Maker terrorizes the Celtics whenever he plays us. And if we get matched up against Milwaukee in the playoffs, we don't have to deal with him. That's all. Yeah, I think it was just an interesting flyer for the Pistons and the Bucks are able to turn around Stanley Johnson for a much better player. So I think it's kind of a win-win on both parts and hopefully a change of scenery for those guys does them both well. A quick rundown of a few salary dump type trades that also occurred around the hectic buzz of the trade deadline, starting with the Toronto Raptors sending Malachi Richardson and a 2022 second round pick to the Sixers in return for cash. This was basically just to reduce the Raptors luxury tax bill. Richardson wasn't really playing for them. And that second round pick is probably not going to be all that great of an asset. Similar sort of thing. The Miami Heat sent Tyler Johnson and Wayne Ellington to the Phoenix Suns in a salary dump for Ryan Anderson. Ellington has already been waived, and reports are that he's going to sign with the Pistons, which is an interesting choice. Maybe he thought that he was going to get more minutes for the Pistons than he would have on a more established playoff contender, let's say. And the... Washington Wizards sent Markeith Morris and a 2023 second round pick to the New Orleans Pelicans in return for Wesley Johnson. The difference in salary between Morris and Johnson meant that after a far more important trade that we're going to talk about in a little bit, the Wizards managed to duck under that luxury tax line. So... A lot of trades sort of around this deadline, mainly to free up salary space for a number of teams, either up against luxury tax or just looking to reduce that luxury tax bill. And there were a few more on trade deadline day itself. But let's move on to another big trade from shortly before the actual trade deadline day. The Washington Wizards, as part of that salary dump spree that they went on, sent Otto Porter to the Chicago Bulls for Bobby Portis, Jabari Parker, and a 2023 second round pick. I'm a little surprised that this was the package that the Wizards got in return for Porter. Granted, he's overpaid for the kind of player that he is, but I feel like there are quite a few teams in the league, the Sacramento Kings among them, that could have and should have topped this trade package that the Wizards ended up taking for Porter. Tyler, what are your thoughts on the trade? And these are two of the most poorly run franchises in the league, and I feel like this trade kind of signifies that. Um, I feel like, yeah, Otto Porter is overpaid, but he's a much better player than he's given credit for. Um, It seems like, 
you know, the, the Wizards should have been able to get more. But I mean, if, I guess if this was as much as people were offering, then um, just no one was probably willing to take on his contract. And I don't get what the point of this is for the Bulls, um, why you would bring on that money. Um, and and he's just going to win, you know, a handful of games for them, which could really screw up their lottery pick. And it just it doesn't make any sense for the, for the Bulls at all. Something I brought up on basically every podcast I've been on ever was that in 2016, we had what I call the summer spendathon, where there was like a spike in the cap and every team spent all of the money possible and whoever they can get their hands on, you get the Mozgov deal. Alan Crabb, I think we listed through all of them on, on a podcast that I did with someone. But um, so the the effects of that are still being felt by the league. And I think that applies here where there's probably a bunch of teams that are good to mediocre to maybe could be better that would want Otto Porter and would say, sure, we'll just pay him a bunch of money. Who cares? But everyone locked up all their money. So that couldn't happen. And then what, what Tyler said about how, how terribly these franchises are run, this basically does boil down to you know, Washington's like, oops, we overpaid him. And then Chicago saying, I don't, I don't even know why we're paying Jabari at all. So we're just going to give him away basically. So, uh, it, it, yeah, I, it, it's just bad. Everything about this is bad. Honestly. Let's move on to the Rockets Kings and Cavaliers trade. The Cavaliers continue to basically sell off any asset that wasn't nailed down. So the terms of the deal, the Kings sent Iman Shumpert to the Rockets. The Cavaliers sent Alec Burks and a future second round pick to the Kings and sent Nick Stauskas and Wade Baldwin to the Rockets. There they are again. They will both come up once again later in the podcast. And the Rockets sent Brandon Knight, Marquise Chris, and their 2019 first round pick, which is lottery protected to the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's really tough to grade this trade as a Kings fan for a couple of reasons. So I want to hear you guys' thoughts first. Jeremy, what were your thoughts on this deal? Well, I saw a lot of tweets about how Sacramento really wanted a wing. So they got that. I just saw Alec Burks play against Boston and his, you know, one of his last Cavaliers game. And he put up like, I think he scored about 20 points. So I got a pretty good look at him. Um, Sacramento sort of deep. I don't know really how badly they wanted a player like him until they use him but it, you know it seems pretty useful uh the rest of this seems like a lot of players are sorry a lot of teams just kind of taking out their their garbage with houston gets rid of night and they get rid of chris uh they give up a pick which kind of matters and then i don't know stauskas and baldwin get moved again so it kind of hardly matters so go ahead so i think for the first time maybe ever cleveland may have won a trade i kind of like it for them um i they got another pick and were able to get a first rounder out of it. Um, you know, Chris is kind of shown to not be anything, but if they can even develop him into like a poor man's Tristan, Tristan Thompson, um, it could be interesting. And then the Rockets were kind of able to just build up, you know, some bench depth, which they desperately need. And Shumpert has, you know, has had a decent year. So if he can be a solid player for a, a contending team um this this could turn out to be a, a, a really nice trade for for them as well on paper this is a trade that i think makes a lot of sense for all three teams involved but the most consistently underrated aspect of every trade deadline and every free agency period is that 
even though this is a business and that's a phrase that you'll hear over and over and over and over and over again, there really is a human element to all of this that tends to get swept under the rug. And Iman Shumpert made such a dramatic and impossible to overstate difference to the culture of the Kings franchise. This is a team that I've rooted for for quite a long time, and there has been a sense of hopelessness hanging around as the team has continued to miss the playoffs, whiff on high draft picks, lose and lose and lose and lose and lose, and just be a team that very clearly many free agents would refuse to even listen to. A lot of draft picks would hold back their medical information to desperately try and get the Kings not to draft them. And even though the theory of this trade makes a lot of sense for the Kings, they're trading a guy in Shumpert who was about to be a free agent. In return, they're taking a flyer on a younger guy in Alec Burks who's shown a lot when he hasn't been injured. Man, it's just hard to like this trade from the Kings' perspective because Iman Shumpert made such a big difference in that locker room. And I'm really not sure of the effect that losing him will have on this team. De'Aaron Fox in particular has come out and said all the right things about how they're going to miss Shumpert and the day of the trade was a rough day for all involved, which as we were about to get to was even rougher later on in the day. But Fox has said all the right things about stepping up and taking that leadership role and taking that role as the voice in the locker room. But that's what Shumpert was. And his championship with the Cavaliers clearly carried a lot of equity in that locker room. And he clearly made a huge difference to all of the young players. So even though the pure numbers and statistics side of this makes sense for Sacramento, I mean, I'm going to miss Shumpert a lot as a Kings fan. He clearly made a big difference to just the way that that franchise felt about themselves. And I hope that's something that the young players can carry on in his stead. Moving on to the other big trade of that Wednesday night for the Sacramento Kings. They sent Justin Jackson and Zach Randolph to the Dallas Mavericks in return for Harrison Barnes. A lot of people around the basketball internet seemed to really like this trade. As a Kings fan, I am really worried about it. On the one hand, they didn't give up all that much. Justin Jackson has looked better the last few months of this year, but before that, he was a really inconsistent player who couldn't do anything well enough, in my mind, to justify his time on the floor. Zach Randolph was inactive for the entire season for the Kings, so obviously they're not missing all that much on that front. But I am really worried that Harrison Barnes is going to take this incredible fast-paced Kings offense and dribble the air out of the ball every time he touches it and stunt the development of De'Aaron Fox and take the ball out of Buddy Heald and Marvin Bagley and Harry Giles' hands more than should be taken out of their hands. I don't know. Does one of you want to talk me out of my incredibly pessimistic view of this trade that everyone else seems to like? I'll jump in to start. Um, I, I talked myself out of my earlier theory, but I'll put it out anyways, which is like, I, I would have some faith in, in the Kings coaching to kind of turn Barnes into a Kings player, you know, to work in that system. But I, I kind of just realized before we started recording that Barnes actually had a pretty good coach in Dallas too. And it, he, he just, he's played, so obviously played for the Warriors and then Dallas and now Sacramento. And it feels like he's never really fit in with any of those systems. I'm just, the more I think about it, the more he might just never fit it anywhere. But I, I feel like he's just good enough that it's possible. And someone just has to get him really mad to get him to play well. So 
That's my theory. It could work, and if it doesn't, I don't think it hurts the the team. I'm intrigued by it. I I think it could be a a really good fit, and that Fox Bogdanovich healed lineup has been awesome this year. And if they can slide in Barnes as like a small ball four and throw in Bagley or Giles at the five, and I could see them scoring a ton of points. They will likely give up a ton of points, but they'll still be fun. Um, Worst case scenario, Barnes comes in with the attitude of, oh, I'm an NBA champion. I'm a veteran. This is my team now. Let me take over the offense. And if that's what it is, um, their pace is going to plummet and it's going to be a complete disaster. I know you don't like hearing that, Nick. Sorry. Um, But I I think if, if he comes in with the mentality of, hey, this is a young team, let me play my part, and this is De'Aaron Fox's team, he's the leader, I'll follow his lead. Um, I, I, I think he has the, the tools that could be really good for them because they were in desperate need of, of another big wing. Jeremy, you brought up the coaching point, which I think is also incredibly relevant on this front. I don't know why Dave Yeager isn't getting more buzz for Coach of the Year. This is a team that was lucky to even approach 30 wins last year. And we're more than halfway through the season at this point, And they're still over 500 and still competing for a playoff spot in the Western conference. And you have to attribute a whole lot of that to Dave Yeager looking at the team's offense last year as the slowest paced team in the league with the Aaron Fox at the point and basically saying to himself, playing fast is not the way that I was successful in Memphis. Playing fast isn't, necessarily the way that I've been previously successful as a coach, but I need to adapt to my personnel and make the team's offensive scheme fit what our players are good at. And I think he really deserves a lot of credit for the fact that De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald have had these breakout seasons. Obviously, most of the credit goes to them for improving their respective games, but I don't think they would have been as successful as they have been so far this year without the influence of Jaeger as the coach. And that, I think, is the only saving grace for me not being even more worried than I already am about the Harrison Barnes situation. Although, thank you, Jeremy, for pointing out that he's already been coached by Steve Kerr and Rick Carlisle and still hasn't changed. That really makes me feel a whole lot better about all of this. <laughs> they they could have uh, planted the seeds of how to play basketball efficiently. The seeds have been planted. They just might not sprout until he's like 37 years old. And clearly, as we've seen over the last decade and a half, there is no better organization in basketball for some young player to expand upon their talent and grow as a player. Nowhere better than Sacramento. Yeah, or the Knicks. Why am I so pessimistic? This is the best Kings season in decades. Yeah, I have no idea why you're so down. This is, they've, they're the most fun team to watch in the NBA, and they added a good player. So I, I, I feel like you should be looking at the bright side of things right now and be and be chipper the thing is like if the kings are bad again in three years the the we're gonna look back at this trade deadline and go oh yeah they kind of they kind of kings did again tyler thank you for the <laughs> kindness jeremy i will be sure to cut that out when i edit this podcast because yeah. that never happened <laughs> let's move on to the actual deadline day itself and i wanted to start with all of the deadline day salary dumps because those aren't as much fun to talk about The Houston Rockets sent James Ennis to the Philadelphia 76ers in return for a pick swap, not an actual pick, in 2021. Ennis could maybe be helpful off the bench in Philly. They don't have all that deep of a bench or really much of a bench at all at this point. So 
and this could be helpful for them. Houston lowers their luxury tax bill. Good for them. Tillman Fertitta has low-key been a lot cheaper than I thought he would be with this Rockets team. Maybe that'll be an issue going forward. We'll certainly see. In other salary dumps, we finally get to the end of the Nick Stauskas-Wade-Baldwin trade tandem that has been a constant theme of this deadline. They went to Indiana for a future second-round pick. So just to recap what happened to the two of them, they were traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers in return for Rodney Hood going from Portland to Cleveland. Then from Cleveland, they were part of that three-team deal with the Cavaliers, the Rockets, and the Kings. They went to the Rockets, and then the Rockets proceeded to dump them on the Pacers. So Nick Stauskas and Wade Baldwin, I really hope neither of you unpacked your suitcase at any point over the past week. And I hope you do well in Indiana, I guess. Other sort of salary dump-ish type trades, the... Grizzlies sent Shelvin Mack to the Hawks for Tyler Dorsey. The Hawks are going to waive Mack, so really that was just a move by Memphis to get out of his salary. And Toronto shipped Greg Monroe and a future second-round pick to the Brooklyn Nets. Again, the Raptors just trying to trim down on their tax bill, especially after one of the trades that actually mattered on trade deadline day for non monetary purposes, which we'll get to in a little bit. And on trade deadline day, there were two pretty sizable deals and a third deal that I think matters more than most people think it does. But let's start with the New Orleans Pelicans sent Nikola Miritich to the Milwaukee Bucks in return for Jason Smith, Stanley Johnson. So clearly that flyer didn't work out all that well in Milwaukee. And four, one, two, three, four future second round picks. This deal is huge for a Milwaukee team that has flown under the radar a lot more than I think they should have so far this season. So Jeremy, as a fan of a fellow Eastern Conference Finals contender team, what are your thoughts on this deal for the Bucks? The Bucks are really good this year, and I, I, I'm always a little biased whenever I actually get to go to a game. So I saw the Celtics and Bucks in person in like November when the when the Celtics set their record for three pointers made, and it's one of those games where the home team pulls out early and the road team just won't go away because Giannis is so good and he's so hard to stop. And I think when you get to the playoffs, that that makes them nearly impossible to beat. And they, it, in retrospect, like. You know, last year's first round was kind of whatever. It was like, yeah, the Celtics were on a roll and they won that series. But when you look at how poorly Milwaukee was coached and how Giannis almost won a playoff series entirely by himself is is pretty incredible. And this year, even though they've had a couple players regress, not even by that much, like Middleton's been a little worse, but Lopez has been great. Bledsoe's been great. Miritich is a pretty good shooter. Picking him up is a pretty big deal. So the East has really turned into an arms race. I will just one note because I'm, again, super biased. When the Celtics played the Pelicans earlier this year, they played Miritich straight off the floor in like the first quarter and he never came back in. So whether or not that's relevant, I don't know. It matters to me, but it's pretty good depth. I don't know if he's a crunch guy for them. I also don't know if that really matters, but yeah, they're better. It's a good move. Yes, I mean, we all saw what Miritich was able to help do in New Orleans last year. Um, I'm, I'm not sure he helps them to quite that level this year. 
uh, in Milwaukee, but I, I think this was an awesome move for the Bucks. They they were able to add some really good shooting and depth to their big men. Um, one of the big issues last year was teams could just pack the paint, um, and the Bucks would really struggle to get Giannis any sort of shot. I and mean, part of that was Jason Kidd and jo- and uh, Prunty being the coaches, but another part of that was that the Bucks didn't really have any big men that could stretch the floor, and now they have Ilyasova, Lopez, and now Miritich, so they'll be able to play kind of four out with which will just open up the lane for Giannis, and I think will add a whole new element that their offense will be able to attack throughout the entire game. Milwaukee has been the second best team in the league pretty consistently from start to finish this season, at least in my mind. And they traded people who were not playing for them in return for someone who, even if he can be played off the floor by some teams, and I think the Celtics are the prime team for being able to play Miritich off the floor, they basically gave up almost nothing that was valuable to them at the moment. And those future second round picks probably aren't going to be all that valuable either. I mean, after this trade, I'm pretty comfortable with calling the Milwaukee Bucks the favorite to come out of the Eastern Conference. And Jeremy, maybe you don't want to hear that, but I mean, they've been dominant this year. I don't remember if it was the 10th best or the 11th best point differential of any team in the history of basketball, but they are up there. They are dominating teams every night. They have a perfect roster fit around their superstar player who is a force on both ends of the floor. And I find it really hard to believe that anyone other than the Golden State Warriors can stop this Bucks team in the playoffs. Granted, they don't really have the playoff experience, but they have everything else you could want from a championship contender. No, I do think the Bucks are the best team in the East right now. If if Gordon Hayward can become the the full Gordon Hayward again, I would I would feel good about my Celtics again. But until then, I would I would have Milwaukee over them. Let's move on to the other big deal of trade deadline day. The Memphis Grizzlies shipped franchise cornerstone Mark Gasol to the Toronto Raptors in return for Delon Wright, Jonas Valanciunas, CJ Miles, and a 2024 second round pick. It felt kind of inevitable that the Raptors would try and do something at this trade deadline, especially after the Bucks made that move for Miritich. I think this is a decent trade for Toronto. I'm not sure how much better 34-year-old Marcus Gasol is than Jonas Valanciunas, but ultimately he is a much better defender. I don't think anyone's really going to disagree with that. He has a lot better theoretical spacing potential, and he's a much better passer, so he works better as a complementary piece than Valanciunas, who's a bit more of a one-on-one type of scorer. But Tyler, what were your thoughts on the Marcus Gasol deal? So Valanciunas has been playing pretty well when he's healthy for the Raptors, but he's just kind of one of those big men that succeeds in the regular season and then just can get played off the floor um, in the playoffs. Gasol started off the year, you know, playing at a defensive player of the year level, but then once he kind of saw the rest of the talent and who his coach was, he he kind of let off the gas quite a bit. So I'm, I'm hoping that, being in Toronto and being surrounded by that roster and that coaching staff and those fans kind of ignites the fire 
again and he comes out playing hard and playing to his full potential if he does I, I think it's a really good trade I still don't think it puts them ahead of the Bucks. I am probably I I still have them ahead of the 76ers and Celtics but I, I think it was, it was an interesting pickup and um, just kind of trying to maximize their their time frame with Kawhi while they have him. I think Siakam for Toronto has been really exceptional in a in a more prominent role. And then somehow it doesn't make any sense to me, but Serge Ibaka's had an absolute renaissance season. So, and, and Valanciunas has always been like pretty good, and sometimes he's not good, but that's kind of what you get out of role players. So, adding Gasol, if nothing else, just means that they have a lot of things to figure out. And I just don't feel like this is a part of the season where you want to have more things to figure out. I thought their front court was was really their strength i'm including Kawhi in the as as a front court guy um because he, he he can essentially defend anywhere but um i i just i don't know like sure if you, if you can like get gasol super motivated it could work but i thought he looked kind of gassed for a few games so and i i just saw like delon wright and valanchunas as glue guys for the raptors on paper absolutely worse players than gasol but it, it as as far as watching the Raptors play, I thought they had the right kind of chemistry. Now, that being said, Toronto kind of pulled a reverse Boston where they were really, really good out of the gate. And then since then, they faltered a little bit. So maybe they felt like a deal needed to be made to fix it. But to me, I really think it looks like they just made a trade because they felt like they had to make a trade, which I don't think is <laughs> the reason you should make trades. So uh, I'm, I'm just not sold on this one. Normally, I would completely agree with you in that you shouldn't make a trade just to make a trade. But given the situation that the Raptors are in right now with Kawhi Leonard, I think this is the only time where it is excusable to make that kind of trade just because you have to at least be able to say to Kawhi, look, we put in the effort. We made our best good faith effort to try and make this team as good as possible for this year to try and convince you that we're committed to keeping this team as good as we possibly can for the next couple of years to make this as good of a home for you as possible. And I don't know. I mean, if you're Toronto and you don't do anything at the trade deadline, I think that's a really bad look for trying to sell Kawhi on the future in Toronto. Maybe it's a better than 50% chance that he leaves anyway, but this is the one time where I feel like it does make sense to do something basically just to do something. There are... A couple of other minor trades that I want to discuss before getting into the Clippers deals and the underrated deal that I was discussing earlier. So in a salary dump-ish, I would say, if this wasn't a player-for-player trade, the Sacramento Kings traded Scalabissier to the Portland Portland Trailblazers in return for Caleb Swanigan. I think Swanigan has a much higher floor than Scal. I also think he has a much lower ceiling than Scal, but if you're the Kings, you've already got your young big men for the future in Marvin Bagley and Harry Giles, and Scal was nailed to the bench for most of the season. Granted, the Kings have way too many big men, so that was a part of it, but I feel like there's a much better chance going forward that Swanigan can be a competent eighth or ninth man bench big type of player. I'm not as sold on that potential future for Scal. On the flip side, if Portland can manage to figure out his game and get him to be able to better use his incredible potential, this could be a home run deal for them. And in return, they're giving up a guy who wasn't playing all that much for them anyway. 
All right, now that we've cleaned up the business of that sort of really incredibly minor trade, let's move on to the final two deals made by the Los Angeles Clippers, who, in my mind anyway, I think did the best job at the trade deadline of maximizing their assets. So they traded Avery Bradley to the Memphis Grizzlies for Garrett Temple and Jamichael Green. And Jeremy... You're not going to like me saying this, but I think the Clippers got instantly far better as soon as Doc Rivers lost the option to play Avery Bradley for extended minutes because he's been overrated as a defender since the day he left the Celtics, and he's been literally the worst offensive starter in the league for the vast majority of the season. And I genuinely believe that even if the Clippers traded Bradley for a 2024 top 55 protected second round pick, the team would get better just because Doc Rivers couldn't play Avery Bradley anymore. And instead, they got two, I think, very valuable contributors in Garrett Temple and Jermichael Green. And if one or both of those guys do really well down the stretch of the season, the Clippers can re-sign them for not all that much this offseason. Tyler, what are your thoughts on this deal? I like it a lot for the Clippers. Um, I mean, I, th- I think Temple and Green are really solid role players, and they just kind of continue to build their roster with a bunch of good, not great players. Um, I think to Michael Green shooting like 40% from three this year. So I mean, they're not names that really excite you, but they're I, I think they're valuable trade pieces if they're looking to do something in the offseason here. Um, and just... Being able to move off Avery Bradley, who unfortunately has had just a really bad year, um, what was a nice move. Yeah, I'm sad because Avery Bradley is is truly one of my favorite basketball players because he was sort of like the bridge between the last big three Celtics to whatever the current Celtics are now. There was like an era that he bridged it to that already ended because they traded Isaiah Thomas, but whatever. Um, it, it's it's a really weird path for him because the Celtics obviously have some kind of wizardry where they get the most out of their role players. And with Bradley, it, it really feels like they 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 made the most out of kind of an antiquated thing where you really can't run like teams small ball now is not as small as you think. Like the, the Celtics would play like three guards at once. Small ball in the NBA is usually like a point guard and like four small forwards or something. But the Celtics went super small and somehow made it work. So in Detroit I know they, they tried to like run the offense through and that doesn't really make sense. And as far as the one-on-one defense, I don't know where it went, but it's so weird in retrospect now, just trying to figure out how the Celtics made him so good. And now he's, he's uh, I think Memphis has him locked up for next year. It's only $2 million guaranteed based on what I looked up. But uh, it's such a weird road. And I guess it makes sense for Memphis to trade to expirings to kick the tires on a player. But um, I'll always, I'll always hold out some hope for Bradley because I think he's a really good basketball player. I don't know how the Clippers used him, but if it was anything other than having him run off screens, then it was probably too much. The other deadline day deal for the Clippers, they sent Mike Muscala, recently acquired from the 76ers in the Tobias Harris trade, to the Los Angeles Lakers in return for Ivica Zubats and Michael Beasley. This trade to me really seems like it's just the Clippers saying, hey, Zubats has been on the other side of the Staples Center for the last year and a half or so, and we're interested in what he might be. And Muscala is not exactly that valuable of a future asset for the Clippers, so 
why not take a flyer on someone like Zubats and Beasley, if he hasn't been waived by the time you hear this podcast, he will probably be waived shortly afterwards. Not really any skin off the kip, off the Clippers' backs anyway. He was an expiring deal. But either of you have any thoughts on this particular move? I could jump in for this one because it, it seems so weird for the Lakers because they're they're basically giving up a young piece to to be able to package Beasley and have a spot open for the buyout market. But the buyout market is all centers, which Zubats was, and he seemed like he was decent. And there's just a little other extra context that the the Lakers have just been punting on centers. They had Lopez, they had Randall, who's not really a center, but he's huge. So I just I don't I don't know why the Lakers do this. Let's be real. The Lakers are not entering the buyout market. They're entering the Carmelo Anthony buyout market. Very different market. <laughs> You're probably right, too. Oh, my God. Basically, Magic Johnson is saying, well, LeBron and Rich Paul, we couldn't get you Anthony Davis at the trade deadline. So how about your buddy Carmelo instead? Hard pass. We won't really be able to talk about how terribly run the Lakers are until LeBron leaves. But it's 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 something. <laughs> I'll save it. Teaser. So the final deadline day deal that we have not discussed yet is the deadline day deal that I left for the last conversation very intentionally. The Philadelphia 76ers traded Markel Fultz to the Orlando Magic in return for Jonathan Simmons, a future first round pick and a future second round pick. The first round pick is Oklahoma City's top 20 protected 20. 20 first round pick which by the way the philadelphia 76ers actually sent to the orlando magic after receiving it as part of the jeremy grant trade so that pick has gone full circle it's impossible to rate markel fultz's trade value it's impossible to rate markel fultz's value as an asset to an nba team but the way i see it is that however much of fultz's issues have been mental There have certainly been at least a few minor injuries that have contributed to this. And obviously right now he's dealing with the thoracic outlet syndrome, which may have actually been what he had all along that was just initially misdiagnosed by the Sixers medical staff. On the one hand, Fultz hasn't really shown enough for me to feel comfortable that he's going to end up being anything close to what he was at Washington. On the other hand, There might not be a medical staff in basketball other than the one in New Orleans, which is their football medical staff, that I trust less than the Sixers doctors. So I think there's a very, very good chance that when Fultz is outside of the spotlight of being the number one pick that was supposed to be the savior for that Philadelphia franchise, he can take the rest of the year to heal and show up next year in Orlando with virtually no expectations for a team that hasn't had a point guard in forever. I feel like this could really come back to haunt the Sixers because even though Orlando hasn't been a brilliant franchise in terms of managing their assets the last few years, it's hard for me to think of a spot that would be easier for Fultz to recover his value and sort of find himself as an NBA player than a team in Orlando that isn't playing for all that much and has desperately needed a point guard for a while now. I don't know. I'm really high on this trade for Orlando even though I recognize that the Sixers probably had to do this to make the money work this summer when those free agents come to the market. But Tyler, what are your thoughts on this deal? I absolutely love it for Orlando. Um, I know it's a shot in the dark. It's a flyer. It's whatever buzzword you want to use, but why not take a shot at them? Um, And that 
first round pick is top 20 protected from OKC. And if it doesn't convey in 2020, it turns into two second rounders in 2022 and 2023, I believe. So if you're just giving up a handful of second round picks for a former number one pick who's a year and a half into his career, why not? And Orlando desperately needs a point guard. He's Fultz will be out of the media, essentially, because no one really cares about the Magic games because they're not a, they haven't been good for years. So it'll give him time to just kind of focus on playing basketball and stay away from the circus and the expectations that surrounded that 76ers team. Even if he just turns into a league average player, I think this is a huge win um, for him and the Magic. It's it'll, it'll just kind of be a, a happy ending. Um, it's kind of sad to say that being a, four, a number one pick turning into a league average player would be a happy ending, but his his path has just kind of been constantly surrounded with drama and false diagnoses and just expectations that weren't realistic. So from the Magic point of view, I love it. From the Philly point of view, I think it makes all the sense. Just just let the kid move on and just kind of be done with it. So the, the Philly side of this is interesting to me because on one hand, I actually think it's decent value for him just given the fact that they're all in on this lineup they've assembled and they desperately, desperately need some depth now. So they have they have, they have have Jonathan Simmons, who I, I don't know if he's that good, but I think he's competent. But um, the, the other side of that is that they gave up a pick for free to pick faults and then they had to punt on faults, which when you look at it through that light is horrible value. So it's, it's really hard to evaluate in that sense. And on paper, this is good for the magic. But in, in my in my in my heart, I think that the magic are a talent graveyard. And I've been saying that for years. And I don't think it's changed all that much, to be honest with you. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just can't get over how much Philadelphia has given up at the deadline to go all in. But, you know, they feel good about it. So good for them. But, um, yeah, maybe maybe Fultz will be good someday. I don't know. All right, before we wrap up here, let's talk briefly about some of the most surprising deals that didn't happen. And I want to start with one that is actually not surprising to me at all, but I feel like should at least be discussed, seeing as it was the major talking point throughout the trade deadline season. Anthony Davis will finish out this season as a member of the New Orleans Pelicans. Adam Silver, according to reporting from Brian Windhorse, hilariously threatened to find Pelicans $100,000 for every game for the rest of the season where Davis isn't active to try and discourage them from playing him and risking him getting injured. First of all, if I'm the Pelicans, I'm kind of willing to sacrifice that $2.7 million for the rest of the year in return for ensuring that Anthony Davis doesn't get hurt at any point of the rest of the year. But <laughs> it's just so funny to me that Silver literally told them yeah, you will get fined if you don't play him for the rest of the year because he requested the trade. But Jeremy, I'm sure you're just devastated that <laughs> the Boston Celtics will now be able to enter the trade market for Anthony Davis this coming off season. It's almost a guarantee that I'm going to be crying my eyes out in public when all my favorite players have to move to New Orleans and play for a team that calls themselves the Pelicans. But I've been waiting so long to ask this question. 
Tell me if this trade goes through. D'Angelo Russell, Julius Randle, Brooke Lopez, two firsts, and then whatever other filler piece the Pelicans would want for Anthony Davis. Does that go through? I mean, when are you proposing the trade? If you're proposing it when all of those guys are actually on the Lakers, their value was severely depressed by the environment that they were playing in with the Lakers. But if you're talking right now, I mean, one of the main things that Pelicans have said is that they want someone with all-star, all-NBA potential to be part of the package coming back for Anthony Davis. And D'Angelo Russell just made the all-star team. You know, sure, it was as an injury replacement in the Eastern Conference, but still made the all-star team, which is more than you can say about any of the Lakers' young guys right now. And I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that unless Brandon Ingram finds a new home very quickly and Lonzo Ball figures out how to shoot like a normal human being, I don't think any of those guys are going to be all-stars at any point in their careers. So, I mean, yeah, it's certainly a better package than anything the Lakers have any chance of offering anytime soon. Brian Windhorst came back or came out on the uh, jump just the other day and said that the Pelicans were just essentially just messing with the Lakers and had no intention of trading him to the Lakers at the deadline. Um, how much of that is true, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really sure, but I, I just like the visual of Dell Dumps just constantly hitting ignore whenever Magic tries to call him. I also enjoy the visual of Danny Ainge calling Dell Dumps and promising him everything. <laughs> and then this offseason, he's just going to offer Terry Rozier, Marcus Smart, and Marcus Morris in like a first. Um, so I, I never really expected Davis to get traded. Um, I thought the way his agency handled it with the the statement a week ahead or two weeks ahead of time i thought it was poorly done i thought this whole thing was kind of mismanaged on his part and this whole bs list of teams that he would resign with that don't actually have anything to trade for him was absurd um i i that this whole thing is just an absolute has just been poorly handled from all sides and It'll, it'll be interesting to see what the Celtics do end up offering him or offering for him uh, this this offseason. I, I could see them just trying to lowball him and the Pelicans just accepting it because no one wants to deal with the Lakers and all of their tampering nonsense. I will say this. If this entire exercise was just a massive troll job by Dell Demps, that is by far the best thing that he has ever done as the executive for the New Orleans Pelicans. Dude, I think it was because th- this was so clearly orchestrated by Rich Paul. And dude, if I was managing the Pelicans right now, I would have done the same thing. Uh, especially when like this always happens with the Lakers is they don't nobody bluffs their hand at all. It's just so blatant and out of the open that it, it makes them really vulnerable. And they were basically baited into leaking out somehow that their entire team is on the trading block. And uh yeah, it, just every single step of the negotiation that they had no way of coming away with Anthony Davis anyways was totally botched. And it's, it's just sort of baffling that it all played out in that way. And it's weird that Anthony Davis would go out of his way to hire Rich Paul and apparently not have any idea that it could go as terribly as it did, which is this is about as awful as it could have gone. The other star level player that was in major trade talks around the deadline that didn't end up getting moved was Mike Conley. I also wasn't particularly surprised by that 
move or I guess lack thereof. Conley is still under contract for next year and the Grizzlies didn't have to move him today. They're probably going to get a better package in return for Mike Conley during the off season or maybe around draft day. So that one wasn't particularly surprising. What was surprising to me is that Orlando didn't try to sell off Nikola Vucevic or I think more to the point, they didn't try to sell off Terrence Ross, who is, I think, a much easier player to find a move for that makes sense. Vucevic, no one really needs a center at this point, and unless you're making him the centerpiece of your offense, there's really not that much of a point in trading for Vooch, and there really aren't that many teams in the league that are bad enough where he should be their offensive centerpiece. Good for him making an all-star team. I think in 10 years, it's going to be the Jamal McGlure, Chris Kamen all-star selection for Vucevic. But hey, you know, he gets a good all-star weekend. That's pretty fun for him. Did Chris Kamen make an all-star team? Oh, yeah. Chris Kamen made an all-star team. That's incredible. Wait, what? For which which team? I believe it was when he was on the Clippers. I'm not 100% sure. I just know that I have in the back of my mind that the two most hilarious all-stars of all time are Jamal McGlure <laughs> and Chris Kamen. That's ridiculous. That, like, I always think it's weird that like Josh Smith never made the team, but Chris Kamen made an all-star? Does, okay, whatever. Uh, I'll just say that uh, I thought Orlando would, would try to make a play for like Terry Rozier, and I, I absolutely thought Ross was going to be on the move too. So I thought it's like not great for the Celtics, but I thought it was just sort of a natural fit where the Celtics would want to shoot her off the bench and the Magical want a point guard, but it didn't happen, so it didn't happen. But, uh, yeah. I thought Ross would have been a perfect fit in uh, Philly. And I, I was kind of surprised he wasn't part of that Fultz, Fultz trade. Um, Vucevic not moving kind of makes sense. They And the All-Star game is coming up, and they obviously, you know, they have an All-Star, so why not hold on to him because they haven't had one in forever. And we, we need to get Mike Conley to the East so he can make an All-Star team because he deserves to be on an All-Star team, and he needs to be playing for a contender again because the dude is awesome. Well, according to Lakers fans, Mike Conley is going to get traded this offseason for Rajon Rondo. And according to Celtics fans, Mike Conley is going to be traded to the Celtics for Gershon Yabasele. So, you know, we have time to make hey. some moves. Seems like good value. All right. Anything else before we wrap up here? Yes. Bring the Morris twin to Boston. I don't care about Anthony Davis. I don't care about any of these other trades. Mark Keith Morris has been bought out. Marcus Morris is the best. I want both Morris twins and the Celtics. I want it right now. Thank you. Yeah, I can't follow that up, so I'm good. Unite the twins. I thought they were in Minnesota. <laughs> Baseball puns. <laughs> okay. That was exactly the response that that deserved. <laughs> All right. Well, they are Tyler Metcalf and Jeremy Stevens. You can find both of their work on the hashtag basketball website. We're starting to get to the point where people are considering the upcoming draft, and Tyler does a lot of great work around draft time, so be sure to check that out. And I'm sure that Jeremy will have a number of articles up about just how wonderful the Boston Celtics are and how they can never do anything wrong. You can find Correct. my work. There you go. You can find my work on the hashtag basketball website as well. You can find Jeremy on Twitter at taco underscore house. You can find Tyler at tmetcalf11, and you can find me at n b a j o h n s o n. 
If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Five stars, of course, always appreciated. But if you don't want to give five stars, please feel free to write a review and let us know why. And if you have feedback along those lines as well, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.